From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Charlotte and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we are going to discuss mountain climbing and the great outdoors. We'll be tuning into an interview Kezia Diaz did recently with outdoor enthusiast Yulia Fakur about the interconnectivity between spirituality and nature. They also share what it is like to be a beginner climber and how to get more involved in the outdoors. That's all coming up on Terra Informa, but first, we'll hear some headlines from around the world. A study recently published in the Journal of Nature Communications has stated that the current climate policies of China, Canada, and Russia would drive climatic change of more than 5 degrees Celsius, resulting in catastrophic warming. The study assesses the least strict of the goals of each country to limit climatic change and relates them to the rise in global temperatures that would result if the world followed in their steps. India is currently leading the way with goals in place that would result in a temperature rise of 2 degrees Celsius. Canada's lack of ambition to address carbon emissions is attributed to powerful fossil fuel lobbies that weaken government pledges to address climate change. Authors of the study state that the metrics presented in this paper, quote, translate the lack of ambition on a global scale to a national scale, end quote, and that these findings should be a motivation for civilians, knowledge holders, and decision makers to hold governments accountable. On November 26, 2018, Environment Jeunesse applied to bring class action against the Canadian government before the Superior Court of Quebec on behalf of Quebecois aged 35 and under. They are suing the government for inaction on climate change in light of the recent recommendation from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, to avoid any delays as the Earth's temperature is on the rise. Written on the Environment Jeunesse website, 23-year-old environmental activist Alex Ruman says, quote, The climate crisis is not science fiction. It is a phenomenon with disastrous consequences, and it affects everyone here and now. Not only are the Canadian goals far below the recommendations of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Canada doesn't even have an effective plan to reduce GHG emissions, end quote. The Environment Jeunesse is encouraging people to get involved in the hopes the Canadian government will have a renewed interest in addressing climate change more seriously. That's all for headlines, but before we get to this week's piece, we're coming in hot with a new eco-babble. Metering infrastructure. Natural energies. Eco-babble. If you've been paying any attention to international climate news in the past few years, you've probably heard of the Paris Agreement that was established in 2015. That year, the Conference of the Parties met to create a framework for avoiding the rise of the Earth's temperature beyond two degrees. Now, delegates and government leaders are meeting again this week for COP24, the United Nations 24th annual climate conference in Katowice, Poland, for an arguably even more important task. But wait a second, hold up. If you're anything like me, you might be thinking, 
Who is the conference of the parties? What are they trying to do? How does this all work? And why are there so many acronyms? Okay, so let me provide a little rundown of the group and all of the history behind it. The Conference of the Parties was formed in 1994. It was formed by an agreement made at the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit in 1992 called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is oftentimes just referred to um, by its acronym, the UNFCCC. The goals of the UNFCCC are to prevent temperature rise from exceeding two degrees above pre-industrial levels and mitigate global anthropogenic climate change by stabling atmospheric greenhouse gas emission concentrations. Today, the convention has been ratified by virtually all the members of the United Nations states, 197 parties, and one economic integration organization have ratified the convention. So, where does the Conference of the Parties fit into the UNFCCC? The Conference of the Parties, or the COP, is the ultimate decision-making body of the convention that's in charge of negotiating and coordinating international climate action. Since the UNFCCC was established, the Conference of the Parties have met annually to review implementation of the convention, to evaluate the measures that the parties have taken, and other legal instruments that the parties have chosen to adopt. Instruments uh, include things like the Paris Agreement, and despite how futile international climate action can seem, progress has been made to some extent. 57 countries are closing in on their targets that are necessary to curb greater climate disruption. More carbon pricing initiatives are being implemented globally. And high-income countries are committing to providing financial support for lower-income countries to reach their targets. Okay, so that was a lot of acronyms, and you might be thinking, I've also heard stuff about the IPCC. How does that body fit into all of this other stuff that we've just talked about? So the International Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, is the scientific body in charge of assessing the science related to climate change. So the COP is kind of this body that regulates governments and the actual implementation of stuff, and the IPCC is the group who evaluates the science, giving a basis off which the COP can set targets. The UN Environmental Program, or the UNEP, and the World Meteorological Organization contribute to the IPCC. The IPCC is a body of academics that um, draws the line for global temperature rise. So that 1.5 degree number was drawn by them, um, it was decided that that is the allowable temperature rise above pre-industrial levels that is needed to avoid potentially catastrophic effects on the functioning of Earth systems. And just for reference, we're at about one degree increase since the pre those pre-industrial level markers. Here's a little more history about what the UNFCC has done and what has led us to where we are today at the 24th Conference of the Parties. So back in 1977, the UNFCCC came up with an agreement to reduce emissions to 5% below 1990 levels. The Kyoto Protocol 
only gave targets to developed countries, and unfortunately, the United States never signed on to that one. China was also not a part of the Kyoto Protocol. So, in 2009, world leaders tried to put together a new agreement that would include China and the United States, and they sort of failed. Unsurprisingly, industrialized countries didn't want an agreement that gave them more responsibility. Developing countries argued that Europe and North America had gotten us into this mess, and so that they should make deeper cuts now to live up to their debt. In the end, world leaders did agree, but not in a legal and binding way. Governments, including Canada, have made promises, but there have been no penalties for missing their targets. So this kind of all leads up to the Paris Agreement, and the Paris Agreement holds much more hope because the Paris Agreement is a legally binding agreement. This year's COP24 conference in Poland is being referred to as Paris 2.0 because it's expected to deliver a set of rules that will govern the Paris Agreement and the tools for its effective implementation. The main goal for COP24 will be creating a rulebook or workbook to implement the ideas set out by the 2015 Paris Agreement. The 24th Conference of the Parties comes at a crucial time as the alarming findings from that Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change special report was just released a couple weeks ago. According to the IPCC news release on October 8, 2018, quote, the report finds that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would require rapid and far-reaching transitions in land, energy, industry, buildings, transport, and cities. Global net human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide would need to fall by about 45% from 2012 levels by 2030, reaching net zero around 2050. This means that any remaining emissions would need to be balanced by removing CO2 from the air." End quote. So this report was extremely alarming because the past reports claimed that a rise in two degrees in the global average temperature above those pre-industrial levels would have severe consequences. However, more recently, it was also found that an increase in 1.5 degrees could also achieve those very same consequences on the planet. In the Paris Agreement, the COP set out to prevent us from reaching that 1.5 degree threshold, but as the years are going by, it's looking like an increasingly difficult task. Interestingly, this year you can participate too. The UN created a people's seat for you to virtually sit and share your views alongside government leaders at the climate talks. To join this effort, tag your thoughts with hashtag take a seat on social media. I'm Amanda Rooney, and this has been a Terra Informa Ecobabble. Ecobabble. And now here is Yulia Fikir and Kezia Diaz with a feature piece on spirituality and the outdoors. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. My name is Yulia Fakhr. I'm a master's student in the medical science um, obstetric gynecology department. And I do research on pregnancy complications, and it's super fun. And 
my hobbies are rock climbing and hiking and exploring the outdoors and mountains. Um, basically, anything that can be done anywhere is better done at the mountains and in nature. <laughs> so, I grew up in a very um, city-like area in Lebanon, which is in the Middle East. So even though Lebanon has a lot of mountains, people aren't very outdoorsy and keen to go outside to explore. So in my culture and the way I was raised, it wasn't very uh, popular. And then for my undergrad, I moved to the States and I moved to New York State, which isn't exactly known for its um, green uh, places. So uh, I transitioned between a lot of city environments. So I remember like um, this guy who used to work in our lab was actually like he camped a couple of times and he just brought a bag of stuff and he's like, here you go. And I just took it with me in the car and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Well, how did you, I guess, how did you find the first camping experience in terms of like, did you, I know you said it was very cold and you probably, you came from a place that was not cold at all. No. Did you go in the winter? Did you go in the summer? Um, actually, the second week when school started, okay. so everyone was going, and um, I remember we had sign-ups, and like 100 people showed up, and I was like, and they could only bring like 50 people on the trip mm. because of like safety reasons, so I was like praying I get on that trip, even though I had no idea what I was signing up for, <laughs> but I just wanted to like go to like experience a new thing, yeah. That's pretty cool. Where did you go camping the first time? So my first time was in Jasper. It was, I think it was in the Wapiti campground, yeah. And I had no idea what to bring with me, what to not do, what to do. I didn't even know what were like, the what's the proper equipment for camping. I mean, my family and I, we usually go camping. Um, we're almost like luxury campers, mm -hmm. so we'll, we'll go to a very, um, a, ver a place that has a lot of amenities, so they have showers, mm -hmm. and, and they have water, and they have electricity, so we'll bring our heaters. It's a lot of, um, I guess, luxury camping, but we do the whole tenting experience as well, so that's really nice. But I find that whenever you're out in nature, there's so much of a connectivity. Like, I'm usually a person who's very scared of bugs and, like, mosquitoes and stuff mm -hmm. in the city, like, that's spiders are not my thing but then once I'm out in nature and you're sleeping on the ground with all these bugs you don't even feel like there's a that that sense of fear yeah that's true actually the other thing is like sometimes if you go to campsites they're like kind of more on the wild side you don't really get access to water or showers which means you're not really showering for two days and in the beginning it was like oh my god how am I gonna do this like no way and then I'd be like super self-conscious and super aware of like all this like <laughs> build up of like it's not even realistic it's just like in your head because you're so used to it but eventually it just like it kind of like transitioned into accepting like your body the way it is and you know in its natural form and it kind of like reminds you that the way we live our lives now isn't the way isn't like the natural way mm -hmm. it's actually like the not showering except with water like every two days because of availability is actually how your body is supposed to function and once you like embrace that it's actually like a really good um, feeling. 
and I mean, you definitely revert to like the more natural kind of way mm-hmm. that your body is. You don't care more about like the you need to have your legs done all the time. Yeah. Or you're, or you're, you're always clean and your hair is like straightened and makeup's on all or the time. Or your clothes matching. Or your clothes <laughs> matching. Yeah. Or it's like whatever is not wet and clean is basically. Right. And you're living for the experience. You're more focused on everything else yeah. than yourself. Yeah. It's a very liberating like journey because it's less about like, what, it's less about for show and more about um, just the feeling and how you're perceiving everything in its natural state. Always this saying um, that the mountain does not care that um, goes around in the outdoors community and it's basically saying that like because um, the outdoors environment is so dangerous you need to constantly remember that like the mountain doesn't care about your life you need to care about your life and you need to um, take those um, certain measures to make sure you're safe. Um, as you're out there and you realize all the possible risks and you become super aware of them because in our daily lives it's kind of like hard because there's so many risks and like everything's going on very quickly it's hard to think about all the dangers and risks that you are adding to your life but out in the mountains it's just being like wildlife um, rock fall it's mainly like physical not all of not a lot of like <laughs> other things going on so it's easy to like become aware of it and I feel like a lot of the times it's just it puts you in the situation where you really have to value your life and it just makes sense that makes that makes a lot of sense and because the dangers are very real and they're not mm-hmm. so much in your head like you could be hit by a car sure on the street but then when you're climbing up a mountain, I guess, the danger of falling is way more immediate. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood of that is also dependent on yourself and your capabilities and how you deal with your surroundings. And also what you were saying about how, like, the mountain doesn't care. I guess that makes you just treasure your own life even more and just see yourself for who you are and, and really be doing this journey based mm-hmm. on your own physical capabilities or your own mental capabilities. Um, I also wanted to talk to you a bit about your religious background and how you felt mm-hmm. if that translated at all to just because I know whenever I've been out in nature, it's always been this surreal experience of just mm-hmm. seeing everything out there and just being in complete awe of like, how is this even possible? Like I feel like the littlest person over here mm-hmm. watching this incredible scenery out here. So how does that translate? Do you find a translation? Um, actually, 
Uh, so I come from Lebanon, and a portion of the Lebanese population is Catholic, and it's very religious. So my parents were rather on the religious side. I, however, kind of grew up to be a little bit <laughs> like the black sheep, I guess. Mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't very like religious, and for a while, like I lost a lot of my spirituality because it didn't like I didn't have this distinction between reli- being religious and being spiritual because of how confounded it is in my culture but actually the more and more I started going out I feel like this conflict started resolving because I I could actually like I don't know if that makes sense but just like feel my energy and feel like the peace in nature and in the mountains specifically when you're up high I don't know it's just um it kind of like resolved this conflict for me where I'm constantly like thinking like I need to believe Um, and something is just like just believe in peace and happiness and be who you want to be I came with you a couple times, yep. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. It was very challenging, and um, a big part of it was just, it was not so much the physical climbing, but it was more so the mental mapping out where <laughs> you're going to go. And oftentimes when you're on that wall, you don't know where you should put your hand next or where you should put your foot next, and it's super technical, and that's something I did not know. Was, yeah, yeah, people. Sorry, yeah, people just think, like, you're just going to go up and, like, climb your way, like, randomly, but there's a lot of thought. It's kind of like a chess game where you, like, need to think of all the moves before you make the first move. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I know we have a climbing gym here mm-hmm. at the U of A, which is pretty popular with um, people at the Outdoors Club. Um, how, I know you, you also do some competitions as well. Um, tell me more about that. What's that like? So I think the U of A has a really nice opportunity for all its students. It has um, a climbing center that is free for students to attend as Mm -hmm. long as they are a student. It also offers discounted rates for alumni and as such. So I really didn't want to go there in the beginning because it seemed so intimidating because like you think like rock climbing, you always think heights and I don't like heights. So um, I didn't know that there are two types of rock climbing. There's bouldering, which is basically not, um, it's less about height and like distance and more about technical skills and um, like less about endurance and more about technical skills and stunts and tricks and stuff. So um, actually I was, uh, I was pretty lucky because my roommate in um, my first year was a rock climber, so she dragged me there. <laughs> so I got exposed to it that way because I feel like a lot of people would be intimidated by just like hearing the name of it because it sounds so hard and dangerous and complicated and so niche. But it really isn't. Everyone there is really um, is really friendly, and everyone's so open to like giving you advice and like telling you what to do and how to get started. Even like the staff, and I just like I used to go there just alone and just sit there and just make friends, and it's super awesome. So people shouldn't like have this barrier like I did, because I just felt really like in retrospect it was like not a good reason. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an experience of, I guess, 
the most memorable experience, either a very negative one or a very positive one when you were up in the mountains and if it connects at all to your spirituality? Yeah, you know, I, I'll give you my most recent experience. Um, so um, the Outdoors Club sometimes collaborates with the Alpine Club of Canada, which is kind of like a more technical Outdoors Club, even though they have like um, things for all levels as well. So um, they collaborate on this trip and it's introduction to scrambling and scrambling is actually kind of like a middle area where it's like hiking but climbing so you kind of like hike but it's really steep so you have to use all your force like, like your four um, legs and arms yeah right. so um, the definitions aren't very clear on scrambling but anyways I went to this intro to scrambling class um, like course over the weekend and um, this guy who was super great was leading um, our hike or scramble and um, I researched the scramble. It was hard and I like knew like there was the crux, which is like the hardest part of it. And I saw what it was gonna entail, read other people's reports, read all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, I think I can do it. And then, <laughs> so we wake up really early and it was um, the guy leading our trip and my partner and me. So we wake up really early, we drive up and we go and everything is fine. Yeah, the hike is beautiful. It's like super straightforward in the beginning, just walking. And then we get to this like really intense place where I'm like, Ugh. so we had to rope up. And then we forgot that the day before it rained. So the whole ground was wet and the mud was mixed with the rock. So it was really slippery. And <laughs> you know, when you like read like, oh, 100 meters of exposed terrain, you like think like, oh, 100 meters. But then like in real life, 100 meters are like really long when you're like really scared, you know? It was really scary. I feel like I really pushed myself on that one because I'm really scared of heights and like especially exposure, which means like um, straight up cliffs, like if mm -hmm. you look to the side. So especially when it was muddy and <laughs> so anyways, we went up, you know, it was a uh, it was interesting. The guy actually was really experienced, so he roped me in, so we were tied together. So he would, like, get to a secure position, and I would climb after him, so, like, in case I fell, like, I'm tied to him. So it, it was this, um, this is also another area I would like to touch up on. It's, like, this trust you build with other people and this community, I think it's, like, really valuable because it teaches you, like, it shows you like the good side of people and, and the care that you might not receive in other places like in real life because people are so busy but when people like put their yeah. life literally on the line for you like this guy you know tied in and had I slipped he probably could have also slipped you know but it was like this thing that he would do for the greater benefit and you know to help me so it was like a really good thing to feel <laughs> in that moment and I guess in that moment is you know when it's very dangerous and you value your life so much I guess that is the moment where I feel like I'm most connected to my spirituality because when you put everything aside and the only priority is your safety and your life that is like you feel like you're at the truest of your existence. 
Perfect. Okay. Well, we're out of time. Thank you, Yulia, for coming in and doing this interview with me. Um, I wish you all the best with your climbing. And oh, thank you. <laughs> and you. Yep. Come join me sometime. That was Kezia Diaz speaking with outdoor enthusiast Yulia Fucker. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, which is on Treaty 6 territory. This is the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, make sure to send us an email Terra at cjsr.com or tweet us at Terra Informa. You can also listen to any past episodes on terrainforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors Amanda Rooney, Gazia Diaz, Hannah Cunningham, and Liz Dowdell. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Catch you next week. <laughs>